Good evening. <clears throat> let's worship the Lord. Actually, let's pray, and then we'll get into the word this, this evening. Our Lord and God, we come before you in your glorious, matchless name. We thank you for your grace that you've given us in allowing us this evening to come and to be refreshed as this midweek day has approached. Be refreshed by your word, encouraged by your word. And give to us, Lord, ears to hear, eyes to see, believing minds and believing hearts. We pray, God, that you would help us to understand and see your word. I decrease so that you may increase, become less so that you and you alone can become more. I pray that your grace would be with us and your spirit would be with us tonight as we we dig into your word. Be glorified in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Thank you for joining us on this midweek, this midweek service as we continue our series through congregationalism or on congregationalism. Just in case you've missed it or in case it has not been clearly stated over the past uh, five or six weeks, we are studying from this book, Don't Fire Your Church Members by Jonathan Lehman. Don't Fire Your Church Members by Jonathan Lehman. You're welcome to come after the service and take a look at the author or take a look at the book. Um, write it down and take a picture of it so that you can gather it from yourself or get it for yourself. There may be times <clears throat> during this lesson that I mention Jonathan Lehman's name. If you hear Jonathan Lehman or Lehman, I'm quoting from this book or I'm referring to, to this particular book. It is this book that we're all teaching from. So we're not just being, uh, I guess, ingenuitive on our own. We are taking from this book or borrowing from this book. All right. Uh, if this is your first night with us, I do suggest that you go to our website, rbcbakersfield.org, and catch up on the previous lessons in this series in order to, to gain a better understanding of church polity or church government. Tonight, we will be discussing the, the fifth chapter of Don't Fire Your Church Members by Jonathan Lehman. Tonight is the fifth chapter. That chapter is entitled, How the Holy Spirit Establishes Overseers. How the Holy Spirit establishes overseers as you are maybe taking notes or thinking about that question i'd like to ask you a question and that is this where do or where did the elders get their authority where do or where did the elders get their authority did we wake up one day and said you know I'd like to be a pastor. I think I'll start a church. And boom, a church popped up. Believe it or not, that is the way an overwhelming number of pastors begin their ministry. Wake up one day and say, I'm going to be a pastor. And they give themselves or they appoint themselves as as leaders. <clears throat> That being said, it also implies that that is not the biblical way in which elders or overseers are appointed as shepherds of God's flock. So then, how did elders become shepherds of the church of God? Where did they, where did we, where did we get our authority? Where do we get the right to oversee the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? 
Let's go to Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. <clears throat> Paul is speaking to a group of men as he's getting ready to leave on another missionary journey. He says this. Pay careful attention to yourselves. These men are overseers. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I'm going to read that again. Matthew chapter or Acts, sorry, chapter 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. I ask you the question once again, where did elders get their authority to be overseers of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? The authority that elders possess has been given to them by the Holy Spirit. As stated by Paul in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, elders have been authorized by the Holy Spirit to oversee and to care for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Another word for overseer or elder is bishop. In our culture, we have a certain idea of what bishop is. But essentially, a bishop is an overseer. A bishop is a pastor. I have a friend that I used to to be friends with or that I'm friends with still, but from our old charismatic church who I would call him apostle jokingly and he would call me bishop jokingly because those titles were thrown around as as weight would be thrown around with someone's authority. But to come to find out, it just simply means overseer. So you would not be wrong in calling me and I'm not asking that you do. You would not be wrong and calling one of the elders bishop or overseer or shepherd, because that's exactly what the Holy Spirit has called them to be. The Holy Spirit has set pastors, elders, bishops or overseers over his church as shepherds of the flock of God. And in this lesson, I will be using all of these titles interchangeably as they all have the same meaning. Does that make sense? So when you hear the word bishop or overseer or or pastor or elder, they all mean the same thing. They are overseers of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also affirm that this divine work of the Holy Spirit is not without or void of human involvement. In the book of Acts, we notice that Paul and Barnabas were involved in appointing elders or overseers. Paul and Barnabas are involved in that process of appointing elders and overseers. So did the Holy Spirit speak to Paul and Barnabas and say to them, this individual must be an overseer of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? No, that's not what happened. So then how did Paul and Barnabas appoint elders if it's the Holy Spirit who appoints elders? Paul and Barnabas did exactly what we are doing today. And that is, they were observing the lives of men in their congregation. They spent time with these men. They trained these men. And they came to affirm what the Holy Spirit was doing in that person's individual life. And that is setting them apart for the work of the ministry. 
for the work of shepherding the flock of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul and Barnabas are simply affirming what the Holy Spirit is already doing in their lives. Does that make sense? So sometimes we may go to some of you men and say, do you feel a call on your life? Why are we asking you those questions? Because there's certain things that we see in your life that evidences that maybe you are called to be a shepherd of the Lord Jesus Christ or an overseer in the flock of God, of the flock of God. If you have been listening to the sermons over the past five or six weeks, you know that one of the responsibilities of the congregation is to do what? To appoint elders. How do you do that? If it's the Holy Spirit who appoints elders, you simply affirm what you see the Holy Spirit is doing in their lives. That's how it happens. The congregation appoints elders. Again, they are affirming what the Holy Spirit is doing in that man's life. And they are affirming that that man has been set apart for the work of overseeing the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul exhorts elders in 1 Peter chapter 5. Or not Paul, Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5. Shepherds, shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but freely, according to God's will, not for the money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being an example, being examples of the flock of the Lord Jesus Christ. Elders have been set apart by the Holy Spirit as overseers of the flock of God, and their calling is then affirmed by the congregation. As we observe those qualifications listed for us, we'll find out more in Timothy and in Titus and in other passages. We affirm that this is exactly what God is doing in this individual's life. Since the Holy Spirit has set apart elders for the oversight of the church, they are also entrusting them. God, the Holy Spirit is also entrusting them a certain authority as they oversee the flock of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we all on the same page? So what authority have elders been given by the Holy Spirit as they lead the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? These points that I'm going to be speaking about right now come directly from this book. All right. Number one, what authority? First of all, the authority of the office. Number one, the authority of the office. If you're taking notes, first point. The authority of the office. What, what, what authority has the Holy Spirit given to elders? Number one, they've given them an authority of an office. Why do you think that you should submit to the elders of this church? Think about that for a moment. I'm going to let that, that question kind of marinate in your minds. Why do you think that you should submit to the elders of this church? Or whatever church you are a member of. Is it because you like the style of teaching in which the teachings are delivered. You like the way they teach. Is that why you submit to them? Do you submit to the elders of the church because you like their personality and you find them to be likable? Why do you submit to the elders of the church? Brothers and sisters, friends, members, you do not submit to the elders of this church or whatever church you are a member of because we work hard and preach sound doctrine. That's not why. Not because we greet you warmly. That's not why. And not even because we have similar upbringing and background. That's not why. What what legitimizes the authority and what you should be submitting to is the very fact that the Holy Spirit has set these men apart as overseers of the church. And you would do well to submit within biblical boundaries, of course, to that office. 
that the Holy Spirit has set them apart to or appointed them to, you would do well to submit to that office. And I make the caveat or condition within biblical boundaries because First Timothy notes that one of the qualifications of elders is that we are to live lives above reproach or live lives in a godly manner. So not that we are perfect men, but that you see in our lives the pursuit of holiness. You see in our lives that we are seeking to, to, to follow Christ and you see in our lives examples that you can follow. The authority that we possess has been given to us by God. The office that we have has been given to us by God. And in that office, that is where our authority lies. Not within this man, not within myself, but within the office that God has given to us. And that calling is also affirmed by the local church. Does that make sense? So you're not submitting necessarily to a man per se, but you're submitting to the office. Authority does not come within myself. You don't submit to an elder because I say submit to me. That's not why. But there is an office that we have been appointed to and you are submitting to that office. I'm not the originator, nor am I the definer of the authority that has been given to me. I'm not the originator, nor am I the definer of the office that has been given to me or the other elders. A quote from Nicholas Wolterstoff. Authority can be something A human being can only be something a human being has, not something a human being is. I'll say that again. Authority can only be something a human being has, not something a human being is. Does that make sense? It must be given. And the giver always specifies the authority's jurisdiction and purposes, meaning the person who is an authority always specifies what that authority is for. I set, we set, there have been boundaries set on our authority. There is a purpose for why we are in positions that we are in. Does that make sense? Only God, only God in and of himself possesses authority. In and of himself. He is authority and defines authority. We do not. Amen? If we find that we are giving, we're giving ear to one elder and not giving ear to another. If we find that we are believing one elder's teachings carry more weight than another elder's teachings, then we are elevating men. Then we are elevating men to positions that God has not called us to honor. We're lifting up men and we're not we're not uh, submitting to the office, but rather we're submitting to men that we like more than others. And brothers and sisters, that's just wrong. God has called us to submit to an office regardless of who holds it, as long as they are teaching and within their biblical boundaries. Amen. Amen. When we submit to an office, then we are ultimately submitting to who? To God. When we submit to that office, then we are ultimately submitting to God. What does that mean? Well, who is the one who has established that office? God, who is the one that's given that person that position and that office? God has, just as we've discussed on Sundays. It is God who, who establishes all authorities. There is no authority that has been established that has not been established by God. Therefore, to submit to an elder within biblical boundaries is to submit to God because God has appointed that elder as overseer. God has done that. Amen. Now, this is hard. 
And we're going to get to this in a minute because we have all experienced abuse. We'll get to that in a moment. I love this quote from Mark Dever in reference to words like submit and obey. It has been said that trust may be earned or must be earned. I'll say that again. It has been said that trust must be earned. Before you go any further, slow down. He says, I understood what is meant. But that attitude is at best only half true. That attitude is at best only half true. The kind of trust that we are called to give our fellow imperfect humans in this life, be they family or friends, employers or government government officials or even leaders in the church can never finally be earned. How am I eventually or ultimately going to earn it? It can never be finally earned. It must be given. It must be given as a gift, a gift of faith. A gift of faith, more in trust of God who gives. More in trust of God. You're not necessarily trusting me, you're trusting God. Then of those whom we see as God's gift to us. Well, here's why, and I'll get to that in a moment. It's a serious spiritual deficiency in a church either to have leaders who are trustworthy or members who are incapable of trusting. So when we're hearing things about authority or positions, We automatically go into places in our minds where we have had authority that's been abused and trust that has been abused. So we automatically are apprehensive to say, yes, I submit to that because we've been hurt so many times. So automatically our trust and our lack of trust builds up walls and say, I don't know if I want to go there. The last time I went there, I was hurt really bad. But you trust in your elders. It's not you putting trust in a man. It's you putting trust in God. And also trusting that these men are not perfect. And understanding that these men are not perfect. That they have been placed there by God, but they are not infallible men. They are flawed men. They're going to make mistakes. And therefore, when we, when we teach, when the elders teach, because we've been set apart by God, and our teachings, hopefully God, God willing, are from God, our instruction, it should impose on our minds some kind of weight in our consciences. There, there should, when we teach, there should be some kind of weight that comes upon your conscience. Because they are not teachings that ultimately begin or originate from that man. But they are t- teachings that ultimately originate from God, who has given that human being an office to hold with authority To do what we're going to talk about in just a moment. So now that we've established that the Holy Spirit establishes that position of authority, that office. What are we supposed to do with it? Number two, we have the authority. We've been given the authority to teach. Number one, the, the authority of office has been given by the Holy Spirit. Number two, the authority is used to teach. The authority is used to teach. What is the primary role and responsibility of the elders? What is the primary role and responsibility of the elders? What is our role? First and foremost, authority that has been trusted to the elders to do what? To teach. To teach. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul's purpose in calling elders overseers is so that they may serve as a reminder or he may serve them. Give to them a reminder that their responsibility is to to protect the flock 
against wolves who will rise up from their own number and present deviant doctrines in order to lure disciples into following them. Now, let let me say real quick. This may seem like I know all of these things. I understand that you're supposed to teach, the elders are supposed to teach, but I don't know if you understand your responsibility in keeping us accountable to that calling. Do you hear that? I don't know if you understand the responsibility that you have as a congregational member to keep us accountable to teaching and to teaching God's word. So it's not just, hey, we have the job to teach. You have the job to listen. It is also you have the job to learn. And you also have the job to keep us accountable to teaching. Are you with me? In first Peter. Chapter five, Peter commands the elders to shepherd and oversee the flock by being an example. First Thessalonians five twelve, the leaders lead in the instruction and admonition of the Lord. And in Hebrews chapter 13, the author commands the readers to remember the leaders who taught them God's word and to do what? To imitate their faith. In Paul's first letter to Timothy, his son in the faith, Paul uh, lays out a list of qualifications for elders or overseers of the church. You, you remember seeing that, that, that long list in 1 Timothy chapter 3? Qualifications for overseers. The characteristics of these men. To be above reproach. The husband of one wife. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. They are not isolated as qualifications or characteristics that are only to apply to overseers. Does that make sense? So when we see respectable, when we see above reproach, when we see the husband of one wife, when we see uh, sober minded, that doesn't mean that's only for the elders. That is for all of those who call themselves truly regenerated men and women of God. But there is one distinction that elders are able to teach. Elders are able to teach. They've been gifted by the Holy Spirit to teach. They've been set apart, set apart by the Holy Spirit and been given the ability, the gift to teach. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, Paul commands his young disciple to hold onto the pattern of sound teaching that he has heard from Paul and that what he has heard or learned from Paul, that he should commit or teach to faithful men so that they could do what? So that they also can teach others. Second Timothy chapter two, verse two. So Paul says, Timothy, I'm teaching you whatever you've seen in my life. Go and teach others. So Paul's not just saying to Timothy, Timothy, what I teach you, it stops with you. Timothy, what I teach to you, you pass on and teach to others. And what should the others who learn from Timothy do? They should continue to pass it on and they should continue to pass it on. This is what's called discipleship. Paul's command to Timothy was that he be diligent in correctly teaching the word of truth. Second Timothy or second Timothy two fifteen, that he avoid empty speeches that deviate from the truth of God. Second Timothy two sixteen and 18 and that Timothy would teach and instruct only listen close only as God would have him teach or only what God would have him teach or only God's word. Second Timothy two twenty four. Paul also warned Timothy that there would be those who would inevitably resist God's word. There would be those who would have itchy ears who would only want to hear what they would want to hear. Second Timothy three, eight. 
Paul's letter to Titus presents the same interest in a pattern of sound teaching and sound doctrine to which elders must obey and seek to teach others to obey. Now, what does it mean to teach? If elders have been given the authority to teach, what exactly are we to teach? Someone may say, well, teach the Bible, teach sound doctrine. Brothers and sisters, what does it mean to teach the Bible? What does it mean to teach sound doctrine? Why do I say that? Because you go just a few blocks down the street and the Catholic Church is opening up the Bible and doing opening up the Bible and and teaching the Bible. So then what does it mean to teach the Bible? If there are churches all across the world who are opening up the Bible and teaching from it, what distinguishes our teaching from their teaching? Paul instructs Timothy or Titus in Titus 2.1, he must teach. Now listen to this. What accords? Teach the things that are consistent. That's a big word. If you're taking notes, write down, teach things that are consistent. Write that down if you're taking notes. Teach things that are consistent. Or teach what is appropriate. Or teach what benefits. All of that connected to sound doctrine. So, teach. And you have all of these empty lines in between teach. Here are the empty lines. What accords? Things that are consistent. Big one, big one, big one there. Things that are consistent. What is appropriate to? Or what benefits? Here's the other part that connects to sound doctrine. You've heard all of your life, all of your life in Titus 2.1, teach sound doctrine. But teach what is consistent with sound doctrine. We do not merely grab a text, read it. And by the grace of God, have or, or we don't grab a text, read it, and, and, and do not connect it to the rest of the scriptures. By the grace of God, we grab a text, explain it, give it sense, give the meaning of the text. But how so? As it is consistently related to the rest of the Bible. Do you hear that? So we don't just pull a text out and say, uh, let me just see what this, this is for you today. That's a wrong way to teach. And guess what? Many of you, including myself, were raised that way. We're brought up in churches that way. Where today they're just going to pull a, a verse out of the hat and tell you that your destiny is right around the corner. Now, how does that consistently flow with the rest of Scripture? Or with the, and I'm going to use a big word and I'll explain what it means, with the meta narrative of the Bible or God's big plan. Throughout the scriptures, God's big plan throughout the scriptures. How does that flow? How is that consistent? The consistency with the rest of the Bible, meaning that when we teach, we make sense of that text in light of the Bible's big story. Or here's the word for you. Meta narrative. Of all the teachings in scripture to explain God's eternal plan of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. So when we, for example, go through the book of Esther, as we're teaching Sundays, we see Mordecai being used to deliver the people of God. Now, do we just use that isolated passage and it has no connection with the rest of Scripture? Absolutely not. That story of Mordecai being used to deliver God's people is a small example or a type of the bigger plan of God. In Jesus Christ to deliver his people whom he has loved before the foundation of the world. That's the bigger story. So we have a micro story of a macro plan. Does that make sense? 
That's how we teach what is consistent with sound doctrine. We give you the text. We give you the sense of the text. And here's how it makes sense in light of God's big plan. Jesus is the greater Mordecai. Jesus is the greater Adam. Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is the greater Solomon. Jesus is. And that's how we see the big story, the big plan of God's eternal redemptive plan. When we teach... We do not want to only make sense of that passage, but we want to make sense of that passage in light of God's redemptive plan in history. Amen. 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 And brothers and sisters, when we teach, take note of this. When we teach, we are not discovering as if this is the first time that what we are saying has ever been said. Let me say that one more time. When we teach, we are not discovering as if what we are teaching has never been taught before and we are the first ones to ever say it. Rather, we are uncovering. We are uncovering. We are unearthing, if you will, what has always been there. We are not receiving new revelation. God's word is complete. Nor are we giving new revelation. Rather, we are unveiling, pulling back the veil of what has always been. My professor in seminary says, if you are saying that I'm going to tell you something new today, then I don't want to hear what you have to say because you're probably telling me a lie. This revelation has always been there. This has oh, and we were just unearthing it sometimes for New to our eyes, new to our ears, even new to our minds, but not new. What does Ecclesiastes say? There is nothing new under the sun. Titus 2.15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Paul encourages Timothy to do what? To teach and correct with all. If you're taking notes, all authority. What does it mean for elders to speak with all authority? It does not mean. That they have powerful commanding voices. Or that they possess a certain presence when they stand. Or that they possess a certain charisma that is captivating to hearers. No, that's not what all authority means. When you say, when you hear a a particular speaker and you say, he speaks with such authority. No. It should not be because of their voice, their presence, or even their so-called charisma. That's all exaltation of men. And we must warn against that. Rather, elders speak with authority because what they speak is God's word. That's where the authority lies. It is God's word. I, you look on, on Sermon Audio and some of my, my Reformed Baptist brothers, they, see, they speak so softly. They speak so gently. But there is a weight That is behind every single word that they speak because they are speaking God's word. Look up one of these days. Ian Hamilton. Hear how soft the man from Scotland speaks. And in his soft Scottish accent. He moves me to tears. Because that which he speaks is not of his own ingenuity, but it is the word of God. We don't need to yell to be authoritative. We don't need to, and I do that often, I'm sorry. It's just the way I preach. 
We don't necessarily have to have deep voices like one of my, my, my heroes in the faith that I'm listening to right now, Sam Waldron. We just need to preach God's word. We need to preach God's word. Now, that is not to say that there's not a gift in preaching. We'll get to that in another time. So then, when elders speak, they speak with authority because their message is God's message. That is to say, when we, that is, that is not to say though, when we speak, we do not speak with error. Or that we do not error when we speak. We do error. We error often. And God willing, there'll be times when I'll come back the next time I speak and say, I must misspoke in that particular place. I need to correct that. One of the corrections I made recently in Esther was, I said Esther was a part of the genealogy of Christ. You may not have caught it, but I came the next Sunday and said, I misspoke and said Esther was a part of the genealogy of Christ. She is not. We need to go back and study whatever the elders are saying, whatever they're speaking. Don't take our word as being infallible. It's not. You need to go home and as Pastor John encourages us, encourages us all the time, study for yourself. Be good Bereans. Go back and study God's word. Keep us accountable and call us on it. Not so that you can correct us, but if we need correction, none of us are above it. None of us are above it. Amen. We are overseers. We've been set apart. We've been affirmed by the local church. And we've been affirmed. Our teachings have been affirmed in ways that are different from just other members of the congregation. God has set these men apart. Let me also say, as we teach, we cannot enforce our instructions. We cannot enforce our warnings. We cannot force you to obey what God's word says. We're not going to be at your door and say, did you obey today? And if you say no, we're not going to say, well, come on, let's go. Do it right now. That is not what we are called to do. Our responsibility is not to make you obey the teachings or warnings from God's word, but rather to proclaim the teachings and warnings from God's word and allow the Holy Spirit to work on your minds and to work on your hearts to move you to obey his word. I recognize, though, that we have all had unpleasant experiences in our lives when it comes to authority, authority that's been abused, whether it was in your home where uh, where you have had authority abused in your life or whether it was with a, a a sibling or a teacher or a boss or maybe you're like me and you were under an, an abusive authoritative pastor. We must not allow those unpleasant experiences in our past to deter our future obedience to God's word and to the authority that he has established in his church. I trust that in this church you have seen that the elders recognize their authority and we also recognize our limitations according to what the Bible teaches and says and that we have served you and served God well and that we have served you with humility in light of the responsibility that we've been given by God. I pray that you see that in our lives and, and that has helped you not to give us trust, but to trust that God has placed us in this position and that we are serving well. That is not to say, though, when I talk about not enforcing obedience, that's not to say that we will not follow up and see if you're obeying. We may have conversations one Sunday or one Wednesday or throughout the week, and we may have a discussion about a particular area in your life that you're struggling with. And I will assuredly ask you, how's it going in that part of your life? Let's pray concerning your obedience to that particular area in your life. And you are not beyond asking me about certain places in my life. And I'm not above that either. Amen. Don't ever feel like you can't ask me, how's my married life doing, going? Or how's my prayer life? 
that's great things for me, for people to ask me. But I'm going to ask you too. And don't run away from me after church knowing I'm going to ask you. So what did you get out of that sermon? It's funny how you all kind of disperse and part like the Red Sea when I come walking. No, you don't. Some of you do. We all need that kind of caring accountability. We need it. We need it more than we understand. We need it more. We need it more than we know. But your heeding to God's word, your obedience to God's word will ultimately fall on your own head. You will ultimately be the one to stand accountable before God for what you did and did not obey in your Christian life. Our job will be to faithfully teach consistently the proclamation of God's word. And we will be held accountable to that. And I will also be held accountable to how I disciple my wife and my son. Ultimately, your obedience lies in whether or not you trust God's word. And whether or not you trust that the elders are accurately giving to you God's word. If you believe that, if you've seen that, you will more readily and more faithfully follow the leading of the elders and submit to their authority and their teachings. So how does this make sense now as we close? How does this make sense in a church over the past few weeks that we've been teaching? Hey, wait a minute. You have the keys. It sounds like I just gave a teaching in which I said we have the keys. But that's not the case. Last but not least, elders lead. Congregational congregations rule. And together we make disciples. Elders lead. Congregations rule. And together we make disciples. That's the third point for tonight. What does that mean? That we share authority. We share authority. There are forms and functions in this church. There are, are, are jurisdictions that both of us hold. And together we share responsibility. We share authority. Elders are to lead the congregation. The congregation has final earthly rule over the church. This means... That you are free to act and object over the things that the elders are leading you in at any time. But you must also trust that the elders are leading you in a godly, biblical manner. The congregation, trust the elders. And the two work together toward making disciples for the glory of God. Christian discipleship. How does it work best? Is it a class? I used to think so. I used to think, come to discipleship class. Discipleship is not a class. I hope that you've learned that because we see most most clearly what discipleship truly is as the Lord Jesus Christ leads his disciples for three and a half years. It is life on life ministry. It is follow me as I seek to glorify the father in my life. Christian discipleship works best through what? Imitation. Imitation. Adam was created in God's image so that he might reflect Or imitate God to the world. Israel was given the law so that they might imitate or reflect to the world who God is. Jesus perfectly imitated the Father by speaking and doing only what the Father gave him to speak and do. And so it is with the church. So it is with you and I. Paul encouraged the church of Corinth to follow him as he followed Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Christian discipleship. We affirm different parts of the body. But the Bible's general model for discipleship, it operates on a pattern of emulating one's sound doctrine. So what I'm teaching, you're teaching others. You're emulating what's being taught. Amen. 
emulating sound teaching, emulate. Let me go back to doctrine. How many of you, when we began to teach the doctrines of grace, the five points of Calvinism, how many of you were on fire teaching the five, the, the doctrines of grace to people you came encounter with? You were trying to tell everybody that they should be a Calvinist, weren't you? You were teaching or emulating. I know Louis is. You were emulating the other Louis, emulating doctrine. Teachings. How many of you have passed on the teachings of Esther or the teachings of congregationalism as you've been taught over the past few weeks? You are emulating what's being taught. How about sound living? You are to emulate in ways in which you see your leaders living and even worshiping. As elders, we play a crucial role in this kind of discipleship. Elders who uh, are overseers, we are not perfect, but we strive to live lives above reproach as believers and also able teachers. So we seek to establish a pattern of sound living and sound, at least worship, in this congregation, in my life. And you may not know this or not. I am mindful that the way that I speak to my wife is being watched by others. <clears throat> I'm mindful of that. I'm mindful of the way that you see me either disciplining or loving my son is being watched by others. I'm mindful of that. I'm even mindful of how I worship when I sit, when I stand here. I purposely place myself here to set an example of how to worship. So when you see me lifting my hands, that is not against what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we should lift our hands in worship. It is a right response to the worship of God. I set that example so that other men and other women in the church are not afraid to say, well, he's lifting his hands. It seems to be OK. I'm doing it for a doctrinal reason. It's biblically right. When I sing, I'm singing aloud because it is biblically right. And I'm setting the example for you. Sing. You should never be standing in the back talking to your neighbor or any other on your phone. You should be worshiping, involved in actively worshiping the God of the universe. And I set the example here. And we, as elders, set the example. I know Isaiah does, and so does, I pray, John. We are not on our phones. If you ever see that, call us on that. Amen. You should never see one of the elders joking around during worship, or even during the preached word of God. What kind of example are we setting if we do that? If we're joking with other people and we are setting the example of how others are to follow, then what would it be if we had a bunch of people following that example as if we're joking during worship? What if everybody was joking during worship? What kind of church would we be? If you're to follow our example and you're saying, okay, that's the example I follow. Here's what I'm seeing happening. That is why we must be so mindful of what we are doing when we come. Because we have been called to emulate or to, to imitate so that you can emulate. We follow Christ, you follow us. There are things we are, and, and, and let me just say also, we're not living in, I'm not especially, I'm not living in such a way to put on a show. We're not putting on for you. This is how I worship. This is how I love my wife. This is how I love my son. These are good examples for you to follow. When we go home, prayerfully, you will not find a different Antonio. We set the example. This is what it means to follow Christ. 
This is what it means to follow Christ. In many ways, we're like mountain climbers who have gone ahead of you. We go before you. And as we turn around, we say, that's a safe place to put your foot. That's a safe place to put your hand. You can pull up there. And there are times we're going to need to help pull you up. And that's how we lead. With this kind of leadership, elders and congregations work together. Elders lead, the congregation rules, and together we build up structures for those who are coming in to a church that is safe and encouraging. And that is our hope. You know this from our congregational meetings. The times that we brought members in or that we've had members meetings and we've said there are members who have been away. The elders would like to move on this, but we think it's best to be patient. Church, what do you think? Yes, let's wait on that. We're hopefully setting the example of what it means to to be long suffering with people, to show grace to people. And then what happened when they came back? You congregation reaffirmed their membership in this church that's how we practice elders leading congregational rule and together we work and guess what that family is now here and they're happy praise god for that and it won't be the last time this is an example of what we've been talking about all this time so in closing elders have been set apart by the holy spirit they have been given authority to teach god's word And together, along with the congregation, we work to make disciples for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. In your word, we pray that it was both encouraging, edifying, and also challenging. We give to you all of the praise, the glory, and the honor. Christ, and we pray. Amen.